This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome once again to Windows on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of Intellinews. I'm joined today by two guests. The first is Maxime Erestavi. He describes himself as a civil rights advocate, a media professional and a writer. He's also the co-founder of Horomatske International, a website that reports from Ukraine. Our second guest is uh, Katerina Kruk, who's an activist, journalist and co-founder of Global Ukrainians, an international network of Ukrainians worldwide. She writes the Crook Report column in BNE and was awarded the Atlantic Council Freedom Award for her efforts to inform the rest of the world what was happening on Maidan during the Euromaidan protests in 2014. Guys, welcome to the BNE podcast. So let, let's dive straight in. Um, the f- there's good news. There's the, the e-declaration system that was passed in form, but not in uh, functioning in so much as certain certificates were held back. But those certificates under Poroshenko's orders have now been issued and the system is supposed to be working. This has been taken as a great step forward towards um, doing something about the corruption within the administration. Um, do you really think it's a big step forward? Uh, so, indeed, the system was launched a few days ago, and even though people were reporting not only uh, ordinary uh, users of the system, but also media and journalists, they have been reporting that there are several problems with, uh, with the system. It's not working equally well at any device uh, and for every user. But I rather see this as a positive tendency uh, in a long-term perspective because it helps us build an institution. And what are we doing now in Ukraine and what we have been witnessing in Ukraine for the last two years is for the first time ever, Ukraine is setting up very serious institutions and institution creating the, the, the whole landscape of institutional design for the anti-corruption. First of all, prevention and obviously combating existing corruption. And um, even though the system is not working perfectly on the first day of its launch, uh, obviously we might, we might demand even more. But the, mo- the most important thing is that it was launched. We already have this precedent and it will be used and it will be obviously made better in future. I hope that those bags will be removed. But for me, first of all, I mean, in my, in my way of seeing things in Ukraine and developing things in Ukraine, um, the, the fact that anti-corruption institutions have been launched and they, they've it's been based in law, it's a great step forward that allows, it gives us ground to develop further and to move further into anti-corruption direction and combating corruption in Ukraine. Max, let me ask you, um, to play devil's advocate here, there, there's another way you could frame this, and I'm not saying it's actually what's going on. However, the IMF is sitting on the sidelines with uh, $17 billion, the Standby program has been effectively suspended since last August. Ukraine has now gone a year without receiving a penny. And there was uh, news on the wires today. The, the spokesperson, Rice, was saying that there's probably going to be a board meeting in September and they're probably going to disperse the next tranche, but they're only talking about $700 million, which is less than the 1.7 that the tranche was supposed to be. And that a lot of these moves, these anti-corruption institutions are actually just um, window dressing in order to get at this IMF money and that um, there is no sincere attempt to make a difference. And the reason why I say all of this is that with this uh, e-declaration that just happened, it was launched, but it was 
uh, it was a complete, you know, a shell in so much as without these certificates, mm-hmm. it made no difference whatsoever. And it seems with all of these reforms, this is a pattern that's been repeated in the past that, you know, they make the noises, they say the right things, they set these things up. Um, but push comes to shove, actually most of them are useless. Now, th- I'm taking a very, very cynical line here, but um, I- is there not some truth to this? Look, I can direct uh, the uh, um, the absolutely the same amount of criticism towards IMF because the IMF program um, is not a very success, not only because of Ukrainian officials failing to fulfill some obligation, but also because of IMF being not strong enough for uh, pushing conditionality on those loans, and IMF wasn't strong enough on pushing um, on anti-corruption measures as well, and honestly I I haven't seen a a lot of enthusiasm inside IMF about this program uh, for a while, and I think it's it's equal, uh, you can put an equal amount of blame on IMF for that program not working out the way we all uh, hoped for. At the same time, the Ukrainian economy is not uh, is not doing uh, bad. It's actually performing quite well with uh, returning to growth. It's not robust growth, but still, at the moment, the country doesn't need those money anymore. That's why the uh, Ukrainian side is not so pushy on that front as well. But um, I, I kind of, I, I, I totally agree with Katya on the issue of reforms. And obviously, uh, you should understand that it is window dressing on the behalf of uh, current rulers of Ukraine, especially the presidential administration, because you cannot expect um, the change of mentality from people who are part of the system, but part of the kleptocratic oligarchy system that, run, that ran the country for two decades and keeps keeps doing that at the moment as we speak. At the same time, Ukraine is not going through anything quite uniquely, uh, and many countries before went through uh, similar transformations when they had their revolutions and they had their uh, um, tectonic shifts in development. And Kaida is absolutely right that at the moment we don't see a lot of um, energy in the implementation of those reforms. But the whole point of setting up institutions in crucial moment and having this massive trade-off we've never seen before between kleptocratic elites and the public that they even go for the uh, setting up those institutions, anti-corruption bureaus, uh, procurement systems, is extremely important because maybe we don't have the implementation energy and desire at the moment, but then... Once you set up, as history shows us, and an example of other countries, that once you set up those institutions, it's extremely hard to dismantle them. And uh, the next step is just wait for right people in right time to make those institutions work. So we have to be patient. And, of course, you're talking about a system um, where there was no system. Like you say, 20 years, there's been virtually no reform whatsoever in Ukraine. But, Katya, how confident are you that this process is actually going to move forward. We've made a start, but it's going incredibly slowly if it's moving forward at all. But the pieces are there, but they're not functioning. Mm-hmm. Addressing a little bit what, what Max was saying and obviously answering your question, uh, we also have to, 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 bear, to bear in mind that Ukraine is not unique in its fighting in corruption. And obviously there were other countries that had the same pattern of problems and obviously they, they come up with uh, several different uh, ways how to solve it. 
And recently I was, uh, I was going through the Indonesian case with KPK and how they made the, the, the entire landscape of anti-corruption reform in Indonesia, which um, proved to be a great success. And in the country, which right after, I mean, they, they, they started in a very right moment, right after the economical crisis, meaning that there was a huge demand in the society and obviously in civil society, first of all, uh, for the change. And the institution they set up, they had a wide range of responsibilities. But KPK waited for the right moment to go after very big fish. And after they proved that they, can, they, can, they actually can perform and deliver the results and go after big names in the country, big corruption names in the country, after that, they've been moving very, very fast. Mm. In Ukraine, what we, what we see right now is that almost every single day when you watch TV or when you follow the news, you can see some news about anti-corruption, that different people were detained, that this and this and that. So far, I would say that this is rather low or media level of of corruption, let's say so. So, so far we didn't see big cases like after Kononenko, the person uh, who was, I mean, who was mentioned by Amr Bovicius as one of the reasons why he left the ministry. Uh, obviously, with Onishenko, uh, I can say that it's quite of the, of the success for the newly established institutions because the entire process was set through, through different institutions. They made it to the parliament. Parliament voted, even despite the fact that Onishenko has very robust interest in different political fractions in Verkhovna Rada. Uh, well, Onishenko has left. Obviously, he wasn't detained, he wasn't arrested, but we can see at least some progress and we can at least can see some aiming at very big fish. Uh, one thing that we have to bear in mind and also remember, this is the institutional design of those anti-corruption institutions. Because right now, both Nabu and Nazaka uh, so fighting corruption and preventing co corruption institutions, uh, they have powers only to investigate and they have to cooperate with the prosecutor's office uh, on uh, prosecution of those people. That, that's Meaning what that I was about to ask. I mean, exactly. who exactly should we be looking at? Because the yes. prosecutor's office has had uh, a lot of criticism that it's not actually acting. Yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, you because um, you, your, your point about the institution in Romania too, they have the DNA, the anti-corruption yes. office, mm -hmm. which has gone after prime ministers and, and ministers. But well, isn't this a flaw, another flaw in the in the system? I, that the prosecutor's not involved. Uh, if I can jump in, I think that mm -hmm. look in, in this particular case, I think what is more important is a larger picture. It's important to have those institutions and it's important to have them uh, set up and working. But at the same time, what I see as a bigger problem is a lack of ownership from the on the behalf of a Ukrainian public. So, for example, we had this massive, absolutely internationally well-covered uh, crisis at um, the office of uh, general prosecutor that is being run directly um, as a as a you know a pocket office of the presidential administration and is not able and completely incompetent and incompetent in putting actual people uh, behind the bars. But we had this massive crisis, a lot of coverage internationally. But when uh, local MPs who are fighting against corruption at general prosecutor's office, which is crucial in in fighting with the uh, corruption. Uh, called for a protest. Almost nobody showed up. 
because people don't usually uh, even care about it in, uh, in, in other parts of the country. And I think that's the bigger problem, that people still do not have this feeling of ownership of state institutions, which is obviously a Soviet legacy. And the revolution helped a lot with putting people on the streets and fighting for their rights and being more vocal. But at the same time, when the protest ends and people go home, they don't think that they should they don't think like they need to invest more time going to local offices of their uh, members of the parliament or uh, joining protests less um, less uh, bigger in scale but more important. Um, the, um, and I think that's a problem. The, the public opinion part is important. I talked to Transparency International about Russia's um, sort of half-hearted anti-corruption drive. And Elena Panfilova, who was running the office at the time, said um, that the, the big change is the taboo on talking about corruption at high level has been broken. And once that cat's out of the bag, it becomes a political issue eventually that they're going to have to live up to their promises. But it takes time. Uh, no, I think that there is a large still there is a still larger participation of the public in the process, and but at the same time it is happening on issues that uh, not that very surprising. For example, the participation of regular citizens in the volunteer movement, because uh, the the whole thing of supporting. Um, people who are suffering from Russian invasion in the East or supporting all those internal displaced people. It's all being done by regular Ukrainians who devote time and money and energy to support those people, to bring them to the society, to uh, make them feel um, like important part of it. And the other issues like uh, more on humanitarian uh, basis. But at the same time, again, without political participation of the public, without them being more active, without them making more um, weight, uh, more um, considered political choices when it comes to electing officials, and then controlling them, and um, uh, after the election, uh, this the whole thing won't work. Because isn't this the extraordinary thing about Ukraine that makes it stand out from all the other countries in the, the former Soviet Union? is that the people have been radicalized, they've been politicized, and they, they, they feel that they have some power to make change. I mean, you, you've ousted two presidents in the last 10 years, whereas nearly nobody to the East particularly has even managed to get an effective opposition party together. Oh, absolutely. This is the most fascinating story that captures me all the time about Ukraine, that in this region that was robbed of freedoms, of liberties, a colonized country for decades and centuries, still people are so sensitive towards liberty and freedoms and voicing their opinions, and they're also ready to fight for uh, the, the, their right to speak out and gather peacefully. This is something that is very unique and rare for this region. That's why I think this is the most fascinating uh, non-stop story. Are you optimistic that this story is going to have a happy ending? Um, I, I have a hope. As Max said, the economy is doing relatively well and that uh, they can do without the IMF money for the moment. But looking at what's going on, looking at the demographics in particular, it seems to me that Ukraine is having the same sort of experience that Russia had in the 1990s, that they're just beginning this process of transformation and building a, um, a market economy with, with sensible uh, first of all, a very short comment on what Max said that IMF is not actually paying that much attention and on the conditionalities and actually on deliverables from Ukrainian side. Um, it was a very, I mean, it is a very interesting shift that we can observe right now from the side of the European Union because this anti-corruption efforts and progress in fighting corruption in Ukraine 
uh, has become one of the the most important topics during Ukrainian talks with the with the European Union regarding the visa liberalization process. Because with LAD, with liberal uh, with liberalization of visa process uh, between Ukraine and European Union, there was a very clear set of things that Ukraine should implement, things that Ukraine should do. So it was like it was rather a checklist. And now when Ukraine has done all and checked all the boxes, so like fulfilled all the requirements that European Union has uh, has announced to us, and there was a positive opinion from the Commission and now from one of the parliamentary committees uh, in Brussels. And now behind the closed doors, uh, Ukrainian officials, especially uh, Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister for European Integration, she's saying that there is a bit of resistance from, UP, from the European side because they say, okay, show us more results on anti-corruption. So, yeah, you've done all the things that we ask you to, but here, yeah, you know, you, say have such a, uh, you, say you have such a high level of corruption in Ukraine, so we shall think twice whether to uh, lift uh, visas or not. Meaning that... A fatigue in Europe with Ukraine. I mean, you, you look at the, the Dutch referendum on, on the EU, um, the, what was it, uh, ratifying the, the trade mm-hmm. And they voted it down. And you look at the IMF deal. I mean, not only have they suspended the standby pro- standby program, but the next tranche is not even going to be this 1.7 million uh, billion that it was supposed to be. They're only going to give 700 million. And it seems that the the, the donors, the IMF, the EU, um, have I don't know what to say. Have they lost their patience or they've lost their confidence in Ukraine that it's going to make progress? Because it does well, seem to be abandoned to some extent. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, um, I don't think that we should use the word fatigue when it comes to describing relations between different countries. And, um, and I will ex- explain you why. First of all, the process that we are witnessing right now, uh, very obviously, very, very easily seen on the level of the interactions between the European Union and Ukraine, but also I think in a short-term perspective we'll see the same uh, with the United States, is that... As a result of Euromaidan and then annexation of Crimea and the war in the eastern Ukraine and Russian invasion, Ukraine unexpectedly and very suddenly for itself, but also for international partners, became a key partner in the region and a key subject for for the global security, for the rule of law and obviously for some economical reasons because of the very, very harsh economic situation and crisis that Ukraine faced in early 2014. Meaning that no one actually, both in Brussels and in other European capitals, but also in Washington, could predict that Ukraine could become so high on the agenda. And therefore, there was no uh, no preparation, no strategic documents how to deal with it. And obviously, that you can't deal on that high level of interactions and intensity of interactions and contacts between Ukraine and foreign partners for such a long time. Because before, it was all due to the revolution and very high escal- level of escalation in the East. Meaning that sooner or later, that level of interaction should come down. Because it was unprecedented and it was caused by some extraordinary... Um, extraordinary things like revolution and war, which is rather something not normally everyday today uh, situation in, in each of the countries. Meaning that we would see even more, not like withdrawing from Ukraine, from Ukraine and uh, from Ukraine in affairs, but trying to settle down a little bit and trying to build a new base. Uh, in which directions we are, we are working with Ukraine? What what are the foundations of our cooperation? Because. Um if this showdown with um, 
with Russia. And, and really, mm-hmm. a lot of this has been driven as a political showdown between East and West. And mm-hmm. Putin's been very aggressive. Um, but his, you know, arguing from the Kremlin's perspective, that they say that the West has been very aggressive with the missile, missile shield, with the, mm-hmm. the trade deal with Ukraine. Um, the, the best way to counter this Russian aggression and push westward is to see Ukraine flourish. And that would undermine yes. Putin's power too. If, if Ukraine became a huge success, everybody in Russia would look at, you know, our little as they, they call uh, the Ukrainians. Yes. And, and, and learn the lesson that actually we don't have to live like this. We could actually have a much yeah. better life, a much freer life if Ukraine flourished. But it seems that push comes to shove, the West is not willing to, to pay for it. Uh, and this is actually a lot about money because of all the investment that Ukraine needs. But also, no, it's not that much money. I've seen estimates between 40 billion, 70 billion to put, mm-hmm. you know, turn Ukraine into a Poland. Um, and that would, seems to be in the West's best interest. But they seem to want the, the politics of Ukraine as a buffer zone to Russia without spending a penny. Is that it's, it's very much discouraging, first of all, as for Ukrainian. But in this regard, I still have to say that we should look into the culture of the relations and also the mentality of the people who are making decisions and the way Ukraine was perceived in Western countries before the crisis and before the war and nowadays. Um, two years is just very little. It's just very little amount of time to change the perception of Ukraine and to change how seriously, first of all, Europeans take Ukraine and uh, for, for many, for many still politicians and decision makers, and I know it from my own experience of talking to them and working for them, they don't see crisis in Ukraine and war in Ukraine as European problem. They see it entirely as Ukrainian problem, meaning that, okay, Ukraine should first of all be very much interested in settling down and uh, solving all the problems, and we will be ready to assist and we'll be ready to offer our expertise and our knowledge, meaning that um, there are not only figures that suggest that Ukra- I mean, Western, Western countries uh, aren't that much heavily engaged into helping Ukraine, but also this is something that's very easily to follow in the way how they see Ukraine. And the perception of the country and the perception of the, of the society, unfortunately, can't be changed within a year, despite the very harsh situations that Ukrainians are facing. So well, I see it rather... Yeah. So you know, the other problems that uh, you know going on in the world, Syria in particular. I mean, we at the the G20 summit, Putin's managed to um, manipulate things with his escalation in, in the east just before the the summit, so that the Normandy format meeting is not going to happen, and it's going to come down to a meeting between Putin and Obama, and it seems and, and Merkel, and it seems that you know the great powers, as it were, are going to determine. Ukraine's fate between them. But so uh, clearly Putin is, is angling for some sort of deal, de-escalation in Donbass, uh, and in return he, he wants the financial sanctions on Russia removed. And the game seems to be slipping out of Poroshenko's hands in this sense that the great powers, because they're busy with all these other problems and, and they don't seem to have the, their attention um, that they're, they're spending on Ukraine is, is wavering. And the money that's being earmarked to help it out is also being reduced. But is this a problem? I mean, at the end of the day, the country's got to stand on its own two feet anyway. It, it can't yes. be just bailed out yes. by the East, uh, by the West, right? Yes, when it comes to this, uh, to this situation that was very much, very well described by you just now, uh, well, 
the blame has to be put not only to Western countries who are tired or who just don't want to deal with Ukraine anymore, but also to performance of Ukrainian authorities. And you see here in Ukrainian society, we still have a lot of criticism towards current authorities and actions of Poroshenko. Now with Hroisman, he's been a bit quiet, so it's not like the level of criticism towards him is not that high as compared to the level of criticism towards uh, Yatsenyuk. But now, like, the Poroshenko is the key figure uh, to criticize and to blame for everything. But still, this is true that despite of, of the of considerable progress we've done in many fields, um, still it's not... Uh, it's not give, I mean, it's not certain that Ukraine is changing. Or definitely, it's not changing that quickly as we would like it to be. Sometimes the Poroshenko and also different people in the prosecutor's office, also some politicians, they allow themselves to do the things that they, they, that are entirely brought back from the Yanukovych regime times. Sometimes, for example, when you follow in certain news in Ukraine, you just hide the date, you cover the date. And you could say that, look, those are news from 2012, 2013. So um, one of the things that why Western countries uh, might not willing, I mean, to stand aside Ukraine that strongly, obviously they still can need that they are supporting Ukraine and they stand in alone Ukraine, but they're investing less money and less political support towards Ukrainians, is because the level of expectations towards Ukrainian authorities was very high, both from the side of Ukrainian society, but also from our international partners. And there is a feeling that Ukraine, even though we have done very important steps forward, a little bit failed to meet the expectations of international partners and obviously of, uh, uh, of Ukrainian is, civil um, society. To what extent is this Poroshenko's fault? Because, you know, his, uh, we, we just did a, a big piece in BNE where we looked at his business mm-hmm. empire and, you know, it all remains intact and it actually seems to be benefiting from the fact that he's president. Yes. And if you look at the polls, then Poroshenko's party would not clear the threshold to get into the into the Rada if elections were held tomorrow. And Timoshenko, uh, the former prime minister, the orange prime minister, she, you know, she's riding high. She would win both the presidential elections and her yes. party would win the, the, the Rada elections. The, you know, to what extent is Poroshenko like, losing grip or running out of time? He, he's, he, he's becoming increasingly unpopular both with the international donors and with the, with the people, the Ukrainians themselves. Isn't that true? It is true. And the thing is that it's very hard to, to analyze. I mean, it's very hard to say what is the, the reason for this performance. I mean, for, for his very bad performance. Because on one hand, you can, you can look at the situation from pure economic or political point of view and analyze and the deliverables and uh, like benchmarks, what he has promised, what he has done, and whether there is any change in the situation in Ukraine or not. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, the processes which are taking place in Ukraine are very deep. And uh, I mean, they are very, very complex. And you can't simply not take into account the, the, the fact that he became the president right after the revolution and in the eve of war, meaning that no matter what kind of the person he would be, the, expect- I mean, the hopes that people placed in him were very high. And I remember that right before the, the, like, right before the election day, many people was, were looking at the results of the polls and said, look, okay, Poroshenko has the biggest chance to win. So people were like motivating and encouraging those undecided to vote for Poroshenko to say that he should win 
so we have one candidate. Let, let's make him win in the first round because country in the, in the times of war and right after the revolution can't afford to have a second round of elections. Mm. Meaning that, I mean, the way he, he became a president and how he gained power uh, was in a very, very unique moment of time, both for Ukraine but also for Europe. Uh, yet, on the other hand, um, Poroshenko is, I mean, talking even with people who, who work with him in the presidential administration or in the, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I mean, uh, a lot of people who are dealing with him when it comes to this international arena, those who are advising or implementing his policies and his advices, they say that, well, he's in, definitely he is better than Yanukovych. But it's not enough for Ukrainians right now to say that, look, the previous, I mean, the current government and current president and, and parliament are better than the previous ones, because those shouldn't be the points of reference. So he has his good sides. He allowed for certain things to be pushed. He allowed to, uh, for, for certain reforms to be started. But it's not entirely the new type of Ukrainian. This is not entirely a new type of politician. And you, don't, you still have to bear in mind that he is a businessman, first of all. And the way he is benefiting and his, his people is, are benefiting because he has, a, he is, has an opportunity and he is seizing it. I think and you're saying um, we should recalibrate in so much as Yanukovych was democratically elected. And at the time we mm -hmm. wrote that up saying this is the first true democratic election in Eastern Europe. However, mm -hmm. he turned out to be an extraordinarily bad choice of president in so much as he was the most venial and corrupt president I think we've seen. And then Tereshenko comes in, who's clearly better than Yanukovych, but he's now failed to live up to expectations. But this is a long process, isn't it? I mean, you're saying you're making, having done nothing in Ukraine in terms of reform for the last 20 years, that we've gone from a terrible president to a better one, but who's still insufficient. And the yes. political process will hopefully produce a third president um, who, who will be better. The, the, the big question mark over that is, if it's uh, Timoshenko, was, would that necessarily be an improvement? I mean, she's quite clearly a populist. She says she wants to undo the gas uh, tariff yes. reform, which was a key part of the IMF package. Mm -hmm. So it seems like you know, it's going to be a long, long process, this, yes. um, to create a... Um, you know that I'm trying to be very much balanced in, in, in my opinions, and even though that some points, I mean, some issues are very much emotional to me, and, and some issues I'm very much critical, but I'm always trying to look at, at the certain question or the certain issue from different sides and to find the balance. But not in the case with Timoshenko. <laughs> Here, I'm not even trying to be balanced because there is no balance with her. She's populist and she's driven by hatred and the desire of revenge. And maybe it's not that easy to see uh, from the outside when you just follow from time to time what she's been saying. But on the daily, day-to-day -day basis, how she's acting, how she's reacting, and how I mean, how hawkish her party became, it's just she's entirely. I mean, Timoshenko as the president or as the leader of the biggest fraction in the parliament will definitely be a step forward for Ukraine. Uh, step backwards, step backwards, yes. step backwards for Ukraine. Well, it seems that there's some bumps in the road still ahead. Um, but to, to end on a, on a optimistic note, or yes. rather, are you optimistic about the long-term prospects for the country? Because again, if you, despite all the problems, despite Poroshenko's failings, despite the fact that the president's administration is taking over the direct control, it's not a particularly democratic way to run the country. Now, despite all of these problems, 
there is uh, the people and their belief in democracy and their participation in that and the expectations that they have that the politicians need to pay attention to. And surely this underwrites a brighter future for Ukraine in a way yes. that none of the other Eastern European countries have. It's just a question of how do we get from here to there, and that's not simple. Is that fair? Do you, do you agree? Yes, it is fair. And obviously there are a lot of challenges that Ukraine and Ukraine is facing and Ukrainians are facing. But, well, I, have, I was always saying that the situation that Ukraine has been through and still is through, uh, during the last two years is very much unique and it's influencing Ukrainian people very much. On one hand, I see what I see in Kyiv and what I feel actually from talking to people is that there are a lot of people who start to be a little bit disappointed, saying that yes, they, they feel that they have power and they have this ability to change country only in the moments when we have a revolution and on a day-to-day basis it's a little bit vague and it's not that obvious to them. But still, nevertheless, there are still people who believe that they can make a change and that Ukraine should be a different place. Can and this, this willingness actually, and this willingness which is resulting in building coalitions of people who are thinking the same way and who are ready to make a change. And this is something which is very much crucial for Ukraine, and this is something that makes me very much optimistic about Ukraine's future, is that nowadays, after Maidan and still in this outdoor setting, we have people who are not just saying that, look, we would like to have a better Ukraine, but they are building NGOs, they are building networks, who are working on plans and what is very easy to see on different levels, yet, yes, still it's not the level of the, uh, of the politicians, it's not, still not political elites, but people are, are ready to take responsibilities on the level of how they manage the, the house where they are living and how they manage the relations with the neighbors. So they are, they are learning how democracy is functioning and how responsibility for your own state and for your own being, well-being is functioning on different levels. And I think that based on those lessons and based on those coalitions of, um, of people who are thinking the same way, sooner or later those people will come to the level of political parties, of political movements, and will be transferred to their parliament. And to Does Ukraine then, because I mean it's been solved, um, the year of Maidan was Euro. I mean that yes. Ukraine was going to the West was going to marry itself to Western values, specifically European Union values, which mm-hmm. is what the Union's built on. Um, whereas, as you say, Russia was very keen for Ukraine to join the Euro- Eurasia Economic Union, and in fact the Eurasia Economic Union doesn't work without Ukraine in it, because basically it's Russia and a whole bunch of tiny countries. Um, but what about being neutral? I mean, surely this is actually the pragmatic choice. Uh, or, or does Ukraine want to be part of the European Union? I mean, does Poroshenko keeps talking about it, but European Union membership was specifically never put on the table and is actually not a reality given you know, what's happening with Turkey and the European Union um, expansion fatigue that exists uh, with the other Balkan countries now struggling to get in. How, how do you see that? Look, you're asking a very hard question. It's impossible to, to answer it in one, in one sentence. Because there are, there are too many things which are intertwined. First of all, I mean, the situation in Russia and how Russia sees Ukraine. The problem is that Russia doesn't want to let us go. Having closer relations with, with Western countries doesn't mean that Ukraine will ignore Russia or will have very bad relations with Russia. Uh, but this is Russia who is not agreeing on our perspective, on, on our 
um, perception of our future and how we build our economical and political alliances. This is one thing. Another thing is European Union, and European Union as such is a very complex political being, uh, which is in the permanent crisis <laughs> when it comes to the, uh, to, the, to the future perception of how European Union should look like. And in, mo in most of the cases, we just, when, analyzing situ I mean, when analyzing these relations between European Union and Ukraine, in saying that, oh, EU doesn't give the clear answer, is that uh, because EU is not able to give this clear answer at the moment, because there are a lot of different political crises on different levels in the EU itself. And, you know, this, this, I'm always joking when I'm asked this question whether Ukraine has chances to become part of the, uh, to become member of the European Union. I'm saying that, well, up to the moment when Ukraine uh, will fulfill all the technical and, uh, and legislative and economical requirements to, to apply for the membership, it's very possible that European Union as such won't exist. So we can't predict certain, certain things which are taking place, for example, in the European Union and the dynamics of relations. Uh, and that is why um, there are no clear answers. You know, a few days ago, a friend of mine from Washington, uh, he was asking me a question why, why European Union it seems to be a little bit um, stopping the process of visa liberalization. And at the end, he asked me a very straightforward question. So is it the problem? Is it because Brussels doesn't want it or is it because of Putin and, and Moscow? And it's impossible to give the answer to such questions in just one sentence saying that, well, it's just because of Moscow, it's just because of European states. Because the situation is, is complex and the politics is, that is why politics is so fascinating, but sometimes uh, also challenging in terms of predicting on, or commenting it, because um, every single situation consists of different parts. And the solution for every problem consists also from different parts. That is why I do believe that um, we have a chance to become a member of the European Union. But the truth is that not of the European Union as we see it now. For Ukraine to become part of the EU, we have to have different Ukraine and different European Union. For the time being, I mean, what this, how the situation looks like, uh, looks like right now, well, it looks impossible. But then... It doesn't mean that neutrality, I don't believe that neutrality for Ukraine is an option. We have to choose. And if we won't choose, the situation, I mean, the, the perception of our neighbors will make us to make a choice. Because Kuchma was trying to play, play this role, I mean, to play this balanced game, uh, not to be aligned that much closely with any of our neighbors or any of big alliances, big blocs. But then sooner or later he failed because Russia was pushing him too much and pressuring too much. Great. Katya, Max, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It was really interesting. Great pleasure.